Welcome to the What's Next podcast with Tiffany Bova. Tiffany is a top-rated speaker, thought leader, and sales and marketing influencer known around the world as an industry visionary. Today, she's using her 20 years of sales experience to help companies focus on creating a high-growth culture while adapting to the new realities of the market. She's always asking herself, what's next? Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast. I'm thrilled to have my first Swiss, Alex Osterwalder, on the show today. And what I love most about him is if you go to his website, it's one page. His bio is, in my writing, speaking, and the software company I co-founded, I obsess with making strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship simple, practical, and applicable. So that's what I'm going to read as his bio. Welcome, Alex, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I, you know, I I thought that was so great. Like I went, I go, okay, let me go grab his bio, and you know, and it's one page, like no links, <laughs> no nothing, <laughs> just. Here it is. Uh, but you know, the most important thing, and the reason I wanted to have him on today is uh, he is uh, the author of one of my favorite all-time books, uh, Business Model Generation. It just really uh, has been super instrumental to many things I've done across my career. So that's why I wanted to have him. <laughs> Wonderful. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're going to start with what something I like to call bullish and bearish. Uh, just something fun to get us started, loosen up the conversational juices, and uh, hopefully it's not too painful. You ready? I'm ready. All right. I'm going to start you off with a, with a softball, I think. So bullish or bearish, Switzerland is the best country in the world. <laughs> bullish. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it keeps getting ranked. <laughs> it keeps getting ranked number one. So I thought, well, that's an easy one. Like I'll give him, I'll start him off really easy. So, you know, I figured you'd answer bullish. So I thought I'd make it simple. All right. The second one, because you are the home to, you know, the wonderful World Economic Forum in Davos has just recently happened. Uh, a lot of the conversation was around the fourth industrial revolution and artificial intelligence. So I'm going to use that as the, as the preface for the next question. Are you ready? Yeah, I am. All right. Artificial intelligence will replace more jobs than it adds. Uh, bearish. I think uh, artificial intelligence will create more jobs. I do as well. Great. All right. And the last one uh, I think is near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, but this one is design thinking is the key to successfully building a strategy. <laughs> Bullish, but it's only a, it's only a part. There are a lot more elements to that. Great. That's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. So why don't we start there? Uh, I'd love to have, uh, for those people who are listening, are not familiar with the business model generation, the whole concept and the thinking and how you came uh, to arrive to that, and then really maybe step through those nine building blocks. That would be great. Maybe we can deconstruct the answer to that last bullish and bearish. Excellent. Let's start there. So, you know, how did, how did you land on figuring out that it was, you know, nine building blocks and, and how you could position that to help small businesses and entrepreneurs and really uh, large businesses as well? I mean, you've sell, sold over a million books in, you know, 30 languages or something. So obviously it resonated. So what do you think was so appealing of it? Well, you know, the whole thing actually started out with a doctoral thesis. So I did some research with, uh, with Yves Pinier at the time, who's now my co-author, long-term friend, we published a ton of stuff together. 
he started this idea with a very simple kind of starting point. He said he thought that you know architects they use computer aided design to to make buildings. They have these drawing boards and they can play around with things. What if we could do the same thing in business? What if we could do something better than business plans, you know, 40, 50 pages, if we could create this kind of drawing board or computer-aided design? So that's how it all started out. And I did some research on, we called that back then, crazy enough, the business model ontology, right? Fancy word that gives you a PhD, but practitioners <laughs> will run away. And now we call it the business model canvas. But it was really about creating a simple way to describe any business model. That's, you know, for existing business models, for large and small companies, but also for startups. That was really the starting point. And then it really took off when we put it on the web and then we wrote the book. So from a PhD to very practical stuff, you know, we were even surprised by the success. We thought it would work, but it was really fun to watch how, how it creates value for practitioners. And I think that bridging of the academia, which was one of the things I really loved about the book, that kind of bridging from academia, kind of speak, look, feel to something that would be, um, I guess, uh, welcomed, right, by all kinds of companies, small, large, any place in the world. I think you did it masterfully. And so what led you to making it have that sort of design feel uh, in the first place, because I'm guessing academia would have been the original piece was probably much more content heavy than visually heavy. Yeah, it was pretty concept heavy. And, you know, uh, academia focused a bit more on rigor, but I was following this kind of design science approach, <laughs> you know, the alternative to purely qualitative or quantitative research. And that really, you know, gets you to make it practical because you have to test it in the field. So when we started out playing around with these concepts with Eve Pinier, um, we immediately tested it until we figured out, you know, what kind of concept would we have to come up with that really allows, you know, entrepreneurs and business people, managers to describe their business model. So we would literally iterate the concept until we had something that really works. And we narrowed it down to these nine blocks because these are the nine essential components to any business, you know, large or small every business has a customer, large or small, every business, you know, needs a value proposition for the, the customer segments, otherwise you disappear. Large or small, you know, you have to earn some revenues, you have a revenue stream, you need to reach your customers, you build a customer relationship. That's kind of what we call the front stage. And then the backstage is all, are all of the things you need to make this possible. You need assets, we call those the key resources, you need to perform some activities, we call those the key activities. And nowadays you work more and more with partners to leverage your business model and that gives you your cost structure. So these are nine building blocks that any startup, any SME, any big business like GE or Colgate or so, or even you know, governments have at the end of the day. So that's why the business, the, the, the business model canvas took off because it really allows people to wrap their head around this whole thing. So pretty holistic concept, something very complex, the business model, we narrowed it down to the essential elements. And those are the nine building blocks of any business. So it really allows you to focus your attention on what is this essential to ask yourself how you're creating, delivering, and capturing value in your business. That was the first tool we created to help people visualize an existing business model or a new business model. And then we created a couple of other tools based on the success of the first one. Yeah, what I really liked, and, and I'd love your input on this, is 
you know, over the course of, of when I was advising companies, uh, that they tend to forget that front side, you know, the relationship segment, value prop channel revenue stream that you just pointed out. And they get very focused, almost, you know, tunnel vision around the internal uh, side of the canvas. Would you agree with that? So I think it's even worse. <laughs> Everybody focuses on the part where they live. So if you're in the marketing department, you will focus on customers and channels. If you're in finance, you're going to focus on revenues and costs. If you're in operations, you're going to focus on what you just said, kind of the backstage, the internal side. What we're really missing is you know, a person or a team or a group of people that thinks through the, the big picture. How do all of these pieces fit together? Because marketing without a great value proposition, without the right infrastructure to create this value proposition is, is not a business. It's, a, it's, you know, it's just a, a group of people pulling in different directions. So what we need more and more these days is having that shared vision of what is our business model? What are all of the pieces? What is the story of our business model? And the best companies out there, you know, like Salesforce, like a uh, LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, like, uh, you know, Nespresso or Nestle, they all have great business model stories um, where all the pieces fit together. So I think what we're really missing is, you know, that focus on the bigger picture, something that an entrepreneur always has to have. But, you know, the bigger business gets, the more specialized people get, and the less they focus on the big picture. But what we're seeing today is that more and more business models expire. I like to say they expire like a yogurt in the fridge, meaning that we need to constantly reinvent that business model. It means we need to constantly rethink the whole construct, not just how do we do better marketing, how do we create a new product, or how do we create more lean processes. We need to re reinvent ourselves all the time because otherwise, you know, we risk going out of business. And there are only a few companies that are world-class at reinventing themselves continuously. Because it's very hard to do. Yeah. And it, so if you say that, so there's two things you said there I'd love to get your point of view on. One is it should really be this kind of holistic view across all of these um, different categories versus or, you know, building blocks versus, you know, finance focusing on finance and marketing focusing on finance. But you could or marketing, you could almost argue that uh, or propose that that should be the executive team, right? They're the ones that are running cross, right? The one who's really focused on, you know, driving marketing or could be an individual contributor, right? Or a, a team lead or a leader of a division or group, but the, the small business owner, the entrepreneur, the CEO, right? And that executive team, whomever that might be, might be one person, two people are the ones that should really be flying across all of them. Well, I think that's not really the case. So uh, you could say the CEO of probably a business unit has to have that big picture in mind. If you're talking about the chief marketing officer, the chief financial officer, or the chief operating officer, they actually all focus on their individual piece. It's pretty rare, and I can say this with confidence because you know I bring executive teams together to discuss or map out their business model, and it's surprising how much time it takes them to have a shared understanding of their business model. So while you would say, well, that's obvious, they should know their business model, they kind of do, but they know the individual components. But as a kind of shared construct, they don't always have a you know, completely shared understanding. And then you know, when they do, they definitely don't ask themselves how they could continuously reinvent their business model because that's not what they're paid for. Mostly they're paid for managing a business, a business model, and you know, doing that better and better. 
So their job is not to make their business model irrelevant and invent the future. Their job is to manage a proven business model and you know, improve the processes to, to make it better and better. So over time, actually, the, the executive team almost develops antibodies against anything that looks differently. So the big challenge we have today is that executive teams take a business unit, you know, their job is really to manage a P&L. Now, if you take the CEO of a larger corporation where you might have different business units with different business models, the job is even kind of more abstract because you're managing a portfolio of business models and you're shuffling, you know, portfolio, acquiring businesses, uh, changing the structure of your organization, etc. But there are very few CEOs, very few executive teams that really take the invention of the future very seriously. And there are a few exceptions like uh, Jeff Bezos and his team. They really put in place an, an, an innovation culture that, you know, besides being world-class at execution, they're also world-class at innovation, which you'd call the ambidextrous organization. So while we would think it's obvious that the, it's the executive team's job to kind of rethink the business model all the time, the incentives are, are not like that. Their job is usually to manage the existing business model. And if we add another component to that, you know, you have today a lot of activist investors putting pressure on companies to increase the, the share price. Well, the fastest way to increase the share price is definitely not to reinvent yourself, but to streamline what you're already doing, maybe selling off businesses and you know, increasing margins, cutting costs. So, so today, it's, it's actually very difficult to, to focus on long-term innovation. It is possible because I'm seeing more and more of our clients you know, working in that direction, but there are very few who already got there. And, and it is, you know, it is hard. It's a hard job to constantly ask yourself, how could we create new growth engines? Yeah. And the second thing I was going to point out was this constant reinvention, right? You mentioned it a few times. Uh, and, and I think the challenge always becomes, you know, how do I change the tires on the cars? It's going around the track, right? That constant reinvention is I, I have to manage today's business and keep revenue coming in and kind of keep the car going around the track. Well, at the same time, right, the market has shifted and I need to do something different. And so maybe I need to revisit pieces or parts of the canvas, maybe not the entire canvas. So how would you recommend people balance those two things of, you know, worrying about today uh, while at the same time making sure that they uh, keep it fresh? So I would already take this word innovation and kind of throw it away as an individual term and say, well, there are different types of innovation. There is efficiency innovation, which is all about improving your existing business model. And you want everybody in an existing company to improve the business model or the portfolio of existing and mature businesses. Then there's sustaining innovation. And this is something I take from people like Craig Christensen, this, this distinction. The second one is sustaining innovation, where you want to ask yourself, okay, how can I, you know, some of the products that are becoming obsolete, how can I replace them? Um, and that doesn't create a lot of growth. It's just, you know, if I'm producing a new car and BMW, I'm just going to, you know, re replace the sales that I had from the older um, model. So that's just sustaining innovation. New products and services don't really, you know, lead to growth, except if they're completely different. Then you have growth innovation, which is the hardest part. And, and that, get to that in a second, requires a completely different approach. Growth innovation is either about making the old business model obsolete, so that's almost cannibalizing, so it's 
what Apple does sometimes when they launch new products, they actually undermine the older ones. That's self, you know, self-destruction, but in the goal of doing it before somebody else does it. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's one of the myths of innovation. You can create new growth engines, not at the expense of the past, but in addition to your existing business model. Take Amazon with Amazon Web Services. Like that's a $17 billion business now that is on top of the other businesses that they have. And even better, there's a clear synergy with their e-commerce business or their infrastructure business and infrastructure in general. So, so it doesn't have to be that growth innovation comes at the expense of the established business models. But it's, it, the, the tricky thing is what you said before. Oh, people should rethink the existing business model. Growth innovation is often thinking completely in new dimensions Maybe, you know, not even in the same kind of industry classification. So it means that if you don't have a separate kind of um, space, cultural, uh, maybe even physical, but definitely in terms of metrics and processes, if you don't have a separate space where the intrapreneurs or corporate entrepreneurs can thrive, you're never going to see new growth engines emerge. Now, the tricky thing is that it can't be completely separate because otherwise it's just a startup in chains with all the bad sides of big corporate culture. It needs to be a mini Silicon Valley within a corporation, but being able to draw on the strength of a corporation. So what does a corporation have that a startup doesn't have? Customers, right? So you can test ideas with existing customers if you're a large corporation. Sounds trivial. Now, if these startup, internal startup teams want to start to talk to customers, the account managers are going to say, no, 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 don't touch my customers, you're messing up my bonus. So it's not so easy, right? Which means the, what we could call execution engine, the existing business in all its operations, needs to collaborate with the innovation engine, the space where the new things emerge. It needs to be a partnership. And often the innovators, they call themselves pirates, and they're even proud that they're kind of doing the skunk work stuff. But that's just being a startup in chains, you know, taking all of the, the difficult sides of a startup and including into that, you know, the terrible parts of doing innovation in a large corporation. No, I think the real kind of um, corporation of the future actually is world-class at innovation and world-class at execution and has a really strong partnership or both can live in harmony. And a couple of companies like Amazon that I mentioned before, they were able to put this in place. But that requires management innovation. We need to reinvent how we organize the corporation of the 21st century for innovators, entrepreneurs to thrive within corporations. Every company needs to build a mini Silicon Valley within if they want to survive in the 21st century. So I couldn't agree more. But I would come back at you and say, that is a tall order, right? We've now said you have to have the culture, you know, internally that is willing to act like a mini Silicon Valley, which is, you know, you can say it's lean, it's agile, it's fail fast, whatever, which is very culturally different than steady and conservative, right, et cetera. You've got, um, you know, this... Uh, ability to uh, organize around the customer and and go from the outside in versus the inside out. You know, you rattled off five or six things: you know, strategy and the execution that have to totally be aligned, and that's hard. I mean, that's hard, as as I'm sure you would agree. 
So for the listeners <laughs> that may be an individual contributor, right, or a, a manager for a division or even a you know vice president of a small company or a large company or a CEO, are there parts of the canvas or building blocks of the canvas you say, look, you know, if you're trying to do this, this is the place to start versus trying to boil the ocean and do everything at the same time? So I would, I would push the boundaries and say it's not incredibly hard. It's insanely hard. This, <laughs> yeah. this is I mean, really no, I mean, organized. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to say, oh, you know, he would just say, yeah, let's just do that Monday. Can we just, you know, write that list down yeah. and just work it exactly. out? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to say that, you know, going into innovation in a corporation is usually career suicide. And most people do it because they're really passionate about it. It's not because they want to have a career, right? So, so some succeed. And you know, one of the things I firmly believe in is that there's no one tool that is going to solve every problem. And the business model canvas only has one kind of you know, job to be done, which is to help you map out new business models and think through new business models. It's not going to help you reinvent your corporation. So we came up with a new tool that is less targeted at, you know, the doer, if I may say so, in quotes, who's building a, a, a business model, inventing a business model. We came up with the portfolio map, what we call the business portfolio map, which is for CEOs of medium-sized and large companies who need to think about the present mature businesses, that's one portfolio, and the future, which is the portfolio of new businesses. And what you really want to realize is you're actually managing two completely different types of businesses, two completely different you know, portfolios. So I would go as far as saying, if we really want to make this work, we probably need to have at the head of a company, two job titles, the CEO, the chief execution officer, if you want, who manages the present. And at the same level of power, you have the chief entrepreneur who manages the future, the portfolio of new ideas to invent the future. And they both report to the chairman of the board. If these people don't have the same amount of power, and I'm obviously you know, giving you kind of a provocative construct here, but if we don't give innovation power, it's never going to happen. It's what Steve Blank, the father of the lean startup movement, likes to call innovation theater. Today, we have you know, accelerators and, 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 and incubators in every organization. Every organization is working on innovation in one way or another, but often innovation teams lack power and they're basically just performing innovation theater. It's for the gallery, right? So what we really need to do is give innovation power, maybe put some, you know, some person at their head, the chief entrepreneur who has just as much power as the CEO. And in some companies that actually invent successfully, like Amazon, the, the chief entrepreneur is the CEO, right? And I would argue that at Salesforce, it's exactly the same thing. Um, at Apple, it was the same thing. Well, we, we'll see where, where this goes now. They're still adding an insane amount of, of revenue, even though they have, they're already very big. Can they invent in the future? That's, that's the question. But I think it's, it's something you can't do with the canvas. You need to think about the corporate structure and even the org chart to make this possible, what some academics call the ambidextrous organization or a dual operating system. They need to live in, in harmony and you need other business tools. That's why we came up with the portfolio map. And if I can just add one last thing, you know, we always talk about failure and learning and we have the lean startup approach that Eric Ries made uh, very popular. 
to, to talk about how we're going to iterate to ultimately succeed. Well, the reality of innovation is, is actually a bit worse. If you look at early stage venture capital, you know, 64% of all investments don't return capital, which means they're a complete failure. 25%, they return some capital from 1 to 5x, which means with 90% of your investments in early stage, you're barely going to make any money, which means that in a company, if you're investing in one project, well, you're going to fail. If you're investing in 10 projects, 10 breakthrough ideas, there's only one that's going to make some money. And now if you look at the statistics to the end, only four out of 100 early stage investments actually return more than 10 to 50 times capital, which means there are only four home runs on every 100 investments in early stage capital. So if you now take that and bring it back to the innovation engine of a corporation, if they don't accept that 96 investments, 96 projects are barely going to you know, make back some money, if they don't accept that they need to invest in 100 to, to get four home runs, because if you already make 100 billion in revenues, you want 5% growth, you need to build a $5 billion growth engine every year. You're not going to get that if you don't radically invest a large scale in, in, in innovation, meaning you're not going to make one or two bets, but you're going to make 100 bets. Of those, some are going to fail and you're going to do follow-up rounds like in, in venture capital with, you know, from, from seed round to ABC and so on. So this is a mentality that doesn't exist and will never exist if we don't create an entire space, again, the Silicon Valley within. It's a completely different logic. So Alex, you've said a lot there. There's just, there's a lot for people to, to digest. And, and I'd say there's two things in the book that I really appreciated. One was the value of storytelling, right? Because everything you've just said, if you're a leader of a company or you're the CEO or of a division or a small team, you've got to get people to start to believe this whatever it is, mini Silicon Valley internally, right? This new sort of thinking style, uh, all of the things you've just, you've just mentioned. Uh, and so the value of storytelling is something I'd, I'd love to hear what you think people can do differently and, and, and how they might be able to begin to approach discussing this internally to get buy-in from everyone to, to make the investments. <laughs> so it's a good, very good point. And I would give very simple and basic advice Let's stop, you know, cognitive murder. <laughs> it's a term I like because, you know, you have these PowerPoint decks with, you know, tons of bullet points, a lot of text, and, and they don't have a very clear and simple and engaging story. And when it comes to business models and you want to engage, you know, um, your team, your entire company on a new journey, you don't just want to have a good story to tell about, you know, a business model with a better story. So you start competing on business models. You also want to have the right kind of format to support that. So the business model canvas might be one format to think these things through, you know, in a more kind of analytical way. But then you could say, well, what if I took this analytical format, put it, you know, behind the the, the slide. And in, in the slide, I'm just going to use the structure of the business model canvas, but tell a very elegant story of how the pieces of my business model, you know, fit together and make for a better business model that can outcompete my competition. And I go further than that. I think that the story to tell these days is that, 
hey, we're not competing in an industry anymore. Because if you ask, you know, what industry is, is Apple in today? Are they in software? Are they in hardware? Are they in retail? Are they in content? Well, they're in all of them. Because industry analysis is dead. The best companies today, they don't compete in an industry. They compete with a superior business model. So the story you need to tell as a leader is, why is your business model better? Not just your product, not just your value proposition, not just why you're better, faster, or cheaper, but you need to explain the story of how is your great value proposition, your wonderful product and service embedded in a superior business model that is going to outcompete your competition. That's the story you need to be able to tell in an elegant way and with a great visual support, if you want, to, uh, to really bring that story home. And I do think that kind of storytelling aspect is, is not something that we, uh, we practice very often in, uh, in the corporate world. So kind of in the startup world, we're forced to do our pitches. But in the corporate world, you know, I do think we, we, we don't really take a lot of time to talk about uh, our stories. Then the last piece I'd add to the storytelling is sometimes when we tell a story, we forget that it's not enough to talk about opinions and dreams and visions. As Steve Blank would say, that the, there's a very fine line between vision and hallucination. When you, tell, when you talk about your business model story, your business model vision, your vision for the future, bring evidence to the table. Right? That's what the lean startup um, ha- movement has made so popular. We need to produce evidence to show that actually this is not just a dream, but that we have facts that we got you know, collected outside of the building to, to engage people and show that this story is true. We could actually make it happen. So you bring this to the table before you really go full, you know, and, and invest in scale. That is fantastic. And, you know, I'd say I had Nancy Duarte on my podcast a little bit ago, the master of storytelling. Uh, so if anybody's trying to upskill themselves, uh, she has been fantastic for, for me and many others um, on on how best to, to really categorize that. But I would just want to say, Alex, this has been great. Uh, so I am going to end with... What's next for Business Model Canvas? So if you could rewrite or do the 2.0 version, which maybe you have already done, but the 2.0 version, I I would never give up my dog ear highlight note taken version. So uh, even if you have come out with 2.0, but if you were going to do 2.0, what, if anything, would you change today? So I wouldn't change anything about the business model canvas or the business model generation. That works and that's fine. And, you know, we have millions of users, literally millions of users of the business model canvas, but that's one tool for one job. Again, what I think is really important is that, you know, as, as business practitioners, we need to use the best tools. I see business practitioners, you know, like surgeons, innovation surgeons, if you want. Surgeons are trained for 13 years to become world-class in, at anatomy and then, you know, the tools to, to actually perform surgery. I think when it comes to business, we need to rethink the basics, become world-class at business anatomy. What's a business model? What's a value proposition? What's corporate culture? And then, you know, practice and reinventing ourselves all the time. And, and, and for me, what's next is really bringing these tools together and adding a couple of those pieces that are missing. And what was missing for us, from what we've seen in practice, is that piece around the business portfolio where, you know, large corporations, they can really work on their business portfolio. 
not just think about the mature businesses because those are going to expire. They need to reinvent themselves, which means they need an entire portfolio of hundreds of ideas that they invest in, like a venture capitalist, in order to fill the pipeline to be ready for the future. So I don't think I would redo anything that we did in the past, but we learned so much that I think we're only at the beginning of providing these tools for business practitioners. You know, one of the really important things with Strategizer, our company, is that we really want to bring the tools to the table for the practitioners so they can become innovation surgeons and create the invincible corporation of the 21st century so where companies constantly reinvent themselves. They come up with new business models, test them and implement them before they have to so they don't end up like Kodak or, or Nokia. I think it's possible to create the invincible company and very few companies have gotten to that stage already. My goal is to contribute the tools uh, for pr- practitioners to achieve that. Excellent. Well, Alex, this has been an absolute pleasure. I so appreciate your time of stepping us through uh, the business model canvas and everything that you've been doing. I hope that our listeners uh, take to heart that this is a great way in which they can approach some of the really challenging things they're facing today with the speed of business and everything that's going on. So I really do appreciate your time and, and thank you so much for joining us on the What's Next podcast. Thanks, Tiffany, for having me. This was fun. That was so great. I love talking to people who have written a book that I thoroughly enjoyed. Business Model Generation was an amazing way for me to understand how to deconstruct really complicated problems into a way that's really digestible. I hope you pick one up if you're looking to tackle some big challenges with your business or even teams or groups within a larger company. I think Trying to understand how to take existing and new business and have the startup entrepreneurial spirit inside of a large organization is tough, but it is doable. If you can think in new directions and have growth innovation on your mind, you've got some opportunity to have success. But it's really important. It's not enough to talk about vision of the business. You have to bring examples. You have to bring a way for people to connect with it. And it's the importance of storytelling, the way for people to understand what they should be focused on, what is it they should be doing, and how to get everybody galvanized around moving forward. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. Please subscribe to the What's Next podcast on iTunes. Leave a review. I look forward to hearing from you and appreciate you listening in. Have a great day.